pray first. Um, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the rain, Lord. I thank you for whatever the circumstances that we're in right now, Lord. They're difficult sometimes, Lord. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're just kind of blah, like totally neutral, like we're just here, whatever. Um, but God, I thank you for who you are in the middle of, of all those circumstances, Lord. I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you that you've covenanted that you will be uh, with us, with your people, Lord, that you'll uh, fill us with your, your, your peace, even in the middle, in the middle of, of difficulty and even in the middle of, of great times, Lord, Lord, that you go before us and that we can rely upon you. And so, Lord, that's... Um, my, my heart this morning, and I think why we've gathered this morning, we just want to know you and listen to you and hear from you, Lord, and be, and be encouraged by you, by your word. Build up your church, we pray, this morning, by the power of your spirit and by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you probably, I mean, gosh, like, anyone been watching the news lately? Bummer fest, right? Um, and the many things going on in the world right now that are really overwhelming, like, I mean, there's, there's wars, there's shootings, there are things that are heavy, and in the middle of all that, there's been stuff, difficult stuff in the church. We're starting, we're going to it this morning, by the way, guys. We are, we are just di- di- diving into serious stuff this morning. Um, but you might have seen the news uh, in the last week, the Southern Baptist Convention, right, the largest kind of non-denominational denomination uh, in the United States, um, re- released a report detailing the, that organization's executive committee's response to abuse over the last couple years. And it's a really sad report. Um, it's kind of like a lot like what happened with the Catholic Church not too long ago. There's just a lot of cover-up and a lot of ignoring and a lot of CYA, you know, just like kind of like lawyering up and stuff like that and not um, caring about the abuse victims, failing to remove pastors um, and to notify people that those pastors were abusive um, and just a lot of difficulty. Um, and now, to be clear, I'm not bringing this up because we're Southern Baptists. We're not. You didn't. I didn't. You didn't suddenly realize, well, I'm in a Southern Baptist church. How did that happen in Washington State? Um, but I do think this matters. I'm bringing it up because I think it matters for the church in America. Um, because this you know, scandal and difficulty comes on the heels of a series of other scandals uh, with large churches. And I don't need to you know, name them and talk about them or whatever. Like That's not the point. We're not just uh, pointing out stuff. Um, but, but it's, I think, uh, something I wanted to say out loud because, like, maybe some of you guys are sitting here wondering, and honestly, like, like it's, as, as I had, had last week uh, off from preaching and just sort of praying and, and seeking the Lord, like, it just kind of makes you wonder with all this stuff happening, like, man, is this all worth it? <laughs> you know, like, is, is church really worth it? Um, because, like, this stuff just keeps happening. And then, I mean, I don't know about you, but the last two years have been a little rough, right? COVID has taken a toll on everybody personally. It's taken a toll on the church. Churches across the country are seeing declines in attendance from pre-COVID numbers from down from like 30 to 50% from where they were. A lot of people have decided that it's not worth it. Um, and some of that may still change because people, some, some are still away for health reasons, right? Um, but I think it's clear at this point that many people have decided that it's not worth it. Not, not because of health reasons, but because it's just like not going to fit with their life anymore to go to, go to the church. Um, I meet regularly with a group of pastors from the Valley, um, and they're seeing these numbers, 30 to 50% down, are, is pretty consistent across churches in the Valley. Maybe, maybe one exception. Um, but there's a lot of people who are just not coming to church anymore. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that to judge those people. I'm not saying like, oh, those terrible people or anything like that. I'm just saying, I'm just acknowledging what is a fact. Um, and, and then there's also like even among Valley churches, like a ton of people, and actually it's all over the place. I've listened to some pastors like in California and stuff like that, and they're saying the same thing, is that, is that Christians are uh, leaving states on the West Coast, largely, to go to more conservative places, like, like crazy amounts of numbers. Like there's another one church in the Valley, he says, thinks like 30% of his congregation has left over the last year just to go to a, to a more conservative state because of the, a tiredness about the politics. And again, not commenting on any of that, I'm just, I'm just saying this is what I'm seeing, and this is, I think, the reality of, of life right now in the church. 
And my point isn't to, to, if you're thinking about doing that, my point is not to bring that up to shame you. Like, it's not, that's not it at all. I absolve you. If you want to move to Idaho, God bless you. <laughs> um, no, I, I can't do that, just to be clear. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop digging. Um, but I just want to say that because, like, like we're... Um, it's just a reality. Um, but, you know, I, it's a concern for me, particularly that part of just like Christians leaving, because I came from New England, right, which was a part of the country that at once, at one time was like a powerhouse for the church. And now it's what pastors call the church planter's graveyard. It's where church planters go to die <laughs> because it's a difficult place. And it's a place where the church used to be strong, but in the 90s, because of uh, a, a lot of political reasons, right? Because unfavorable tax policies, honestly, in the Northeast and, and, and cultural moves in the Northeast, Christians kind of evacuated that place. And so I, I like have a heart for that. I'm like, man, I really just, I know what happens when Christians leave a place. So, so I'm just bringing that up. Like, again, and I got, do whatever the Lord calls you to. But I think that just all these things considered, and then all the stuff that's going on in people's lives personally, and honestly, the fact that it's still February, even though it's June, like all of this is adding up to, to make this time a, a really difficult time to be the church. Um, but right now, uh, like I think that we are facing a, a challenge, like I think that the church is, is, is just like in this spot of, of, of difficulty and discouragement. And we're, um, I think, asking that question, is it worth it? And I wonder if some of us are feeling like, man, is this worth it? Is following Jesus in this time, like is, 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 is like really like living a missional life, like living as a Christian in the middle of an increasingly hostile culture, is it really worth it? And I wonder if the church is losing its will to really be the church and to be people who are on mission for Jesus. I wonder if they're losing the will to do that in this time and place. I'm concerned about that, right? And so I'm praying about that a lot. And just to get really personal, I think we're probably asking the question, is I-90 church worth it? Like, is it worth fighting for this, this church, this little gathering of saints? Is, is it worth contending for? Is it worth praying for? Is it worth participating in? Is it worth uh, giving my time and, and finances to, to, to make this church work? Because is it really doing what it needs to be doing? Um, is it worth showing up to small group? Is it worth, you know, coming to the prayer meetings on Thursday nights? Is it worth gathering? Is it really worth my time? Will being a follower of Jesus in the suburbs of Seattle in 2022 really make a difference? Will it make a difference for me personally, and will it make a difference in the world? These are questions I think we're all asking, and I think it's worth asking them, and I think it's worth saying that, yeah, everybody's kind of in this spot. So that's fun. But the great thing is I think that we can be encouraged by the words. So this morning, we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. Uh, this series is called A Peaceful Invasion, um, and it's like we do a couple of chapters, and then we take a break and go do a series, and then we come back to it. So, so we're picking up in Acts chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Um, and, you know, what we've been observing up to this point in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit has initiated something. God is initiating something. He's bringing the gospel forward and, and, and establishing this movement that continues on to, to the day that we call the church. And it's just groups of people who have had, um, they've understood who Jesus is, what he's about, and they've just said yes, responded to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and just to catch you up, like, like what, what's happening in this text at this point in Acts chapter 13 is, is that the Holy Spirit, right, this movement of the Holy Spirit, this peaceful invasion of God into the world started mostly in Jerusalem, mostly among Jewish believers, right? People who were of a Jewish um, ethnicity and faith, and they came to understand who Jesus was, and, and they, they believed that he was the Messiah, the one that Judaism was talking about. And up until this point in the book of Acts, largely the movement has been uh, limited to Jewish people turning to Jesus and becoming Christians. 
But um, there's now been a church formed in a city called Antioch, and Antioch was a, an important city in the Roman Empire, like the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. Um, and what has happened there is that lots of pagan non-Jews, and pagan isn't like just an insult, pagan is just kind of the religion of Rome. They, they worshipped many different gods, and, and so people who are non-Jewish have started to come and believe in this Jewish Messiah who, who proclaims to be the savior of the whole world, not just of the Jews. And, and so they're believing in him for the first time. Groups of, of Gentiles, non-Jews, are coming to believe in him. And so the church is growing there, and this guy named Barnabas is in the church, and he's teaching the church and, and kind of shepherding this movement of, of non-Jewish believers in the church. And what he realizes is that they need somebody to teach them. And so he goes to Tarsus, which is a city not too far from Antioch, and he gets a guy named Saul, who we will later know as Paul. He changes his name actually at some point, which just happens um, in the middle of the book of Acts here. Not, not yet. He's still being referred to as Saul um, here in Acts. And um, gets the guy, brings him back, right? And Saul has been just waiting for 10 years, probably sitting in Tarsus. He had Jesus appear to him as he was going to persecute the church in Damascus. He was this like super Jewish uh, rabbinical student, really a big deal. And he was leading a persecution of the church 10 years prior to this moment. And all of a sudden, as he's going to Damascus to find the believing uh, uh, Jews there, Jews who had believed in Jesus, Jesus shows up to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he's struck blind for three days, and some guy named Ananias comes and brings him back to his home, and he talks to him about Jesus, and suddenly Saul believes, and then Saul starts to open up the scriptures, and he starts to realize, oh my gosh, this Jesus who's come and died, he's risen again and revealed himself to me. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is, the as, as a Jew, the Messiah that I've been waiting for, the Savior. See, he was blind to it. He was persecuting Jesus before, but suddenly Jesus reveals himself to him, and he's awake and alive to who Jesus Jesus is. And you'd think that, man, this radical transformation would lead to like an immediate awesome thing in Saul's life. But what we see is that actually Saul gets sent away to Tarsus kind of because he's a little bit of, um, he's a loose cannon. <laughs> so the church is just like, you need to go back home, buddy. Like you're causing a lot of trouble here. You're going to get yourself killed. And so the church sends him back to Tarsus and he's just sitting around there probably wondering, is this worth it? Like, like wondering, like, what is, what is this for? Like, I've been called by Jesus, like he's shown me who he is, and now I'm just sitting here for, for a decade, just like alone in Tarsus, making tents, because that's what he did, and, and wondering, what is all this for? Is it worth following Jesus? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, I, I feel like I have a calling. I feel like I have a purpose greater than, than what I'm actually like living out, and I'm just like stuck here in this moment. And so Barnabas shows up, like in Acts 12, actually Acts 11, actually, um, and he grabs Saul and he brings him back to Antioch. And then Saul is there living in Antioch, teaching the church there because he's like a scholar and he, he understands the scripture and he's telling them about Jesus. And that's where we're picking up in, in chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Right? And among them were Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, uh, Lucius, the Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this gathering of leaders in the church, prophets and teachers in the church, and they're doing what? They were worshiping the Lord and fasting, right? sitting there in Antioch, worshiping the Lord, fasting. And then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So this, these like three little verses are all we're going to talk about this morning in the book of Acts. Um, but I just want to just like go through the text a little bit and make some observations. Uh, the first is just simple. Like these people are gathered here and they're at Antioch. They are the church leaders of the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers who were recognized to be gifted of the Spirit and, and called to lead there in Antioch. And um, just to like think a little bit about what Antioch was like, um, because it's been a while since we were in Acts and we talked about this you know, a 
couple months ago. But Antioch is an important city. It's a prosperous place, a place that is full of the religion of Rome, which is paganism, the worship of the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon, and whatever. Like, Rome was just like, they were like, whatever God you want to worship, that's the God you should worship. It was a very spiritual place where worshiping all kinds of gods was, 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 was valued, right? And, and so it's a prosperous place. It's a culturally important place. Um, it's a place where there's a lot of money flowing through and there's a lot of gods being worshiped. It's just like Seattle, right? Um, and the church at Antioch came about as a direct result of a move of God, and it's recorded in Acts 11 what happens, okay? So this is in Acts 11, and we talked about this a couple months ago, but I just want to catch us up. He says, this is what happened when the church was founded. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution, so the persecution that was in Jerusalem, had started, uh, that started because of Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, right? So this original movement, like there was persecution in Jerusalem. These Jews go out to other Jews in these other cities, and they tar- start to talk about Jesus to them. Then it goes on. But then there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, the non-Jews, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so this church at Antioch, it really wasn't supposed to exist. Like, it wasn't supposed to exist according to the predominant wisdom among Jews at the time, which is that this was a a Jewish Messiah, a Messiah who's come to save just Jews. But something else happened at Antioch is that these non-Jewish believers started to hear about what God was doing, and they were like, I want to be a part of that. And someone was bold enough to say, yeah, you can. Like, this is actually a message not just for Jews. It's, it's a message that God is, is proclaiming to all people. So non-Jewish believers come to believe in Jesus. And these were people, let's just be clear, about their background. They were people who were immersed in the, the pagan cultures of Rome and Greece. They had been worshiping at the Pantheon because that's what you did. It was just what you did if you were a Roman citizen. You worshiped these false gods. But God revealed himself to them even though they they had no context for Jesus, right? That's the amazing thing, you know? Like if you were Jewish and then all of a sudden someone says and says, I'm the Messiah, that would make sense because you know what a Messiah is. But if you are just a person who's worshiping in Rome, like you don't know what a Messiah is. You have no sense of that you should expect someone to save you. Like Christians say that. We say that all the time. Like I got saved by Jesus. And everyone else who like doesn't understand what you're talking about says, Why? What were you saved from? Was a shark chasing you? Was like, what happened? Like, you know, there's no context for salvation. There's no, no context for, for, for a Messiah among these pagans, but they believed this message that in fact they needed a savior and they needed someone. They needed God to come in and restore their lives because they were, being, they were broken. They believed this message that there's actually one God and that this one God has sent his son Jesus to save the world, to reconcile reconcile the world to himself, to die willingly as a sacrifice, to take away sins. And they believed all these things that were frankly strange ideas in the Roman world, things that wouldn't have made sense to them. But somehow, despite not having a background or context for them, they come to believe this gospel, this good news. And that church believed this strange message, and they believed it, and they taught it. They taught it to people who also didn't have a background for it. And, and I, I think it's worth pointing this out, like, because when I say that, like, Antioch is a lot like Seattle, I, I really mean it. Something's happened in our culture in the United States, and I'm not sitting here like, ooh, like, uh, like saber-rattling about culture and making you all afraid, but just, just to recognize, to be very frank, something's happened in the culture in the, in the United States, and particularly in large progressive cities over the last 25 years, and that's that there's been a culture shift. There's been a shift in culture. The things that people uh, presuppose about life have changed over the course of 25, maybe even 50 years, right? But particularly over the last 20, 25 years. See, there was a time when I was growing up, and I am nearly 40, I know I look like I'm 23, but I am. I'm nearly 40. That's why I have this beard. Um, there was a time when I was growing up where Christian faith was essentially like the default. Like, you know, like everybody was, yeah, sure, I'm Christian. Sure, yeah. I mean, because my dad was Christian, and I, I kind of went to church sometimes. And, you know, I don't know, I went to like VBS a few times. So I, I must be Christian, right? 
there was a time where there was a familiarity, at least, with the name Jesus, right? And a familiarity, and maybe, maybe not a full understanding of, of what the gospel was about. Jesus died, take away sin, sin's a problem, Jesus solves a problem, you know? Kind of a, a, a sense of that. And following Jesus, not only that, like there was an awareness of it, but it was understood among people largely, you know, I realize there are exceptions, that following Jesus was a sensible choice that good people could make. Like it made sense, like because it led you to maybe a more moral life or a good life, right? There was some value in it. And maybe even Christians were admired, particularly when they followed through on, on like the lifestyle that they expressed that they were living. But today, things are different, Things are a lot more like they were in the Roman world. The gospel, first of all, makes no sense to people. It makes no sense to people. They don't, they don't have a context for it. They don't know who Jesus is or, or, or why they would need forgiveness. Like, there's not a sense of, like, collective guilt, like I think there was 25 years ago. I mean, really, that's the difference. We don't feel guilty anymore about things. Um, and people are skeptical of the idea of organized religion, largely because these scandals keep happening. And of course they are. Of course they are. Things like this keep happening. They're skeptical of people like me, whose job it is to teach the Bible and lead a church. We're doing this like Facebook um, thing, which is great, like outreach and like I'm offering like prayer to people on Facebook. And I get a lot of people who want prayer and I get about 25% of people who just want to insult me and call me a pedophile. And like, so it's just like, it's just like, and I just like, I, 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 I don't like take it personally, but you just like, I'm just starting to understand, oh, like I, I kind of grew up in a church, where, an idea where like a pastor was an admired person. And I think we're going into a culture where Christians are, people are skeptical of Christians. Like people look at me and they think, oh, that like, I'm, a, I'm like somebody who's trying to take advantage of them. And I'm just like, well, you don't know me, but. The, great, the greatest part is when they're like, oh, you're just getting rich. I'm like, well, I could show you my $6,000 car. <laughs> I mean, if it works, I'm happy for it. I'm, I'm blessed, but I'm really sure I'm not getting rich. So that's fine. You know, that's fine too. So there's that. It's like, it's like, it's like you think there's like people like, like trying to prey on you from the church or people think that, oh, Christians just want money. The church just wants money. We live in a very different culture. You start to explain to people the good news, and they don't just, they don't get why it's good anymore, right? Like, why is it good news that Jesus died for your sins so that you could be forgiven? People don't understand why that's good news. They don't understand why would they want to have peace with God. Like, God seems like kind of weird and distant, and I don't know, like, does, does, wasn't he responsible for a lot of things? Like, all the bad things in the world, God did those things. So why would I want to have peace with this God, right? Why would I want to have a relationship with him? Why would they need forgiveness? What have I done that's so bad? Like, everybody does bad things. Why do I need forgiveness in particular? And I'm not, like, I'm not pointing all this stuff out to say, oh, look, those silly people who don't believe. Like, just, just recognizing this is what's going on. Scandals have given the church a bad name. And people are skeptical of, of the gospel. They don't understand it. To an outsider, some of the things we do and are about in the church, they're going to make people be skeptical. Um, and in the minds of people, at least, like whether it's true or not, to be a Christian is to be associated with a certain political view, one that in our area is particularly um, not popular. I'll let you guess which one. <laughs> right? In the minds of people, at least, that's what it means to be a Christian. So, so they, they equate belief with, po with a political party, right? And like whatever, that's, I'm just acknowledging that's what, there's an association there. They, they're, they're associating Christianity with scandal and with, with, with greed and with certain things. Um, and we could all dismiss that stuff and say, well, that's just like the media and it's not true and okay, but whatever the reason for it, people, like we are in a culture where people are skeptical. And maybe like they have a reason to be, like maybe they've had a relationship with a Christian and that Christian was a jerk to them. So they feel like maybe they have a real reason to be upset. Um, but all of it adds up to excuses for people not to care about the gospel. And so just like in the Roman world, we're called to go into a culture and talk to people about Jesus and the gospel. And just like in the Roman world, we're going to be met with hostility sometimes, although more likely just indifference. And that's tiring, isn't it? There's a lot of people 
who they're indifferent to Jesus because they don't know what like forgiveness could mean to them, what, what a relationship with God could mean to them, like no context for it, right? And then there's hostility because they have some ideas about what the church is like that are just, I think, not true, right? But based in some anecdotal experience. And the thinking about that can be really deflating. And uh, we can talk our way out of it, right? <laughs> but to be called to a task like Saul and Barnabas are right here and like the church was in the Roman world, to face that hostility and to go into a world like that, like it is a cost that is difficult to bear and it's a cost worth counting. And maybe in the back of your mind, you're wondering, is it worth it? Um, I listen to a podcast, which is what I do. I do a lot of that. Um, guy named Mark Sayers, and he's talking to Christian leaders in particular, but I thought, oh, no, this is like really, really actually really relevant to all of us. So I'm just going to give you a quote here. It says, as leaders, you've all signed up for a lifetime of being misunderstood by fallen humans who will look at you and they won't ever see you. They will see some weird concert in their head of their father issues that they're working for or their mother issues that they're working through and uh, think that a pastor or a Christian should be like, and you will feel unseen. But we are known being by Jesus. I believe, and I, have, I've, I feel this, right, that it is frustrating at times being a Christian in our culture because people are imposing on us some caricature of the person they think we are because of the, the person, because of Jesus, because we believe, because we're, we're Christians, right? They're constantly misunderstanding you. Like you walk into a room, you say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then you are just dealing with people's expectations, whatever those are, and they're putting that stuff on you. They think maybe your faith is about repression, right? And, and controlling people and taking money from them and hurting them and like, making them feel like, like less than when in fact you say, oh, I met Jesus and I was set free and my life was changed. Like, and that's a hard thing to, to step into a relationship and say, like, I see this thing about Jesus and I want to share it with you. And you get met with this like total misunderstanding. It is frustrating. They think your faith is about hiding from difficulty when in fact you've experienced that my faith teaches me to have peace and joy and comfort even in the midst of a hardest time. Not that it's simple, but it actually helps me to face up to the realities of life in a way that I think people just don't get. Like I can look at death and suffering and poverty and, and like going through hard things and I can understand, actually this can be good because God can redeem this because he's faithful and he's got a purpose and he's reconciling the whole world to himself. People just don't get it. You, 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 you look at, People like think like your faith is about hiding from difficulty, but you say, no, my faith helps me to, to disadvantage myself, to serve other people, to put them first. Not from hiding from difficulty. People think your, your, your faith is about like hating people and judging people when you actually think, no, it's just about love. It's like, I believe that God loves people. He cares about them so much. He's created them and he has a, a better purpose than the purpose that we choose for ourselves. He wants to offer grace and mercy, belonging and purpose to people. You will be misunderstood in this world if you believe that. And it is tiring. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new, right? The early church was accused of cannibalism because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. It's just bread, right? But they had all these rumors about him. They were accused of, of trying to destroy Roman culture and bring down the empire. They were accused of all these things, accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters. It's just like, like silly things that had no basis in reality. And if you are a Christian, you're going around, tell people, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Like the things that they would say to you, you'd just be like, oh, this is exhausting. <laughs> like it's exhausting. The things that people believe, the crazy off-base things. And Saul and Barnabas are sent out into that world with a purpose, just like the one that we still have. To be on mission for Jesus to be people who proclaim his love and his grace into a world that is hostile and indifferent to the gospel. And they would spend the rest of their lives being greatly misunderstood. 
Well, why? Like, why? Why would a person choose that? Well, it's right here in Acts uh, 13.2. Because they were called, right? So, so it says this, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. They were called to. God had created them for this. God had a purpose for them to walk into. It was not an easy purpose. It was a difficult purpose, but God had called them to, and that made the difference. They were called to and equipped to and empowered to do the work, the work of witnessing to the gospel among a hostile and indifferent world to proclaim what is true about God's plan for the world and how each of us can actually be a part of it, that we can find purpose and peace and reconciliation with God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. But we have to understand as we go into the world proclaiming this message that Jesus saves and he invites us into a relationship with him that we are going to be misunderstood over and over and over again, and that is difficult, but we're called. And so that's the comfort that we have. Like, why is the gospel so confusing? Why is it so prone to being misunderstood? It's because this, because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the invitation to life through reconciliation with God, through faith, by grace, it is fundamentally at odds uh, with how pe- most people go through their life, with their understanding of what life is like or about. The gospel is offensive. Now, Christians can be offensive, right? But that's different than the gospel being offensive. The gospel message itself, just the the idea that you can have a relationship with God, not because you're a great person, but because Jesus has forgiven you and invited you in by grace to know him, to be reconciled with him, if you trust in him, that is offensive to people. It's intellectually offensive. The gospel is offensive uh, today for one reason. It's the same reason it was offensive in the Roman world. It was offensive for the one reason that Peter explained in Acts 4. It's this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why the gospel is offensive. Be clear. I'm not saying it's offensive because of the exclusivity of it necessarily. Like, oh... But I, I think it's just, it's offensive because to say that the world is one way, that life works out one way, means that all the other ways can't be right all the time. They're not equal. And so the simple message is that God has ordered the world this way. There's a name under heaven by which people are saved. It's not your name. It's not your good name that you're saved by. It's the good name of Jesus, his good work, his grace poured out. That's offensive. That's a simple idea. It's offensive to religious people, too. It's offensive to religious people, that people could just call in the name of Jesus, trust in that name, and just be like, I'm good with God now. I'm transformed. Not, not because I, I'm like super performative in my, in my works, or like I give the most, or I, I do the most, or I speak the most, or whatever. It's offensive because it's just simply that God has ordered the world that way, and that is difficult for people to understand. Think about how this message went over in the Roman world, right? You go around Rome, and you say, look, sure, I know there are hundreds, if not thousands of gods. Every town has their own God. Every nation has their own God. And there's tons of nations gathered together. That was Rome's, that was Rome's thing. Like Rome was like, hey, come and join the Roman party. Worship your gods. We don't care because we love them all, right? That was what Rome's appeal was. That was how Rome was able to grow and, and build into uh, their culture all these other nations. That and military might. <laughs> Those two things combined. They were like, hey, it's no problem. Uh, so yeah, so come worship God. If not, we're going to kill you. And people would say, you know, yeah, that sounds good. We'll go join Rome. Yeah. Um, but then you come into this culture where that's like the basis of your social cohesion, where everybody can worship whatever, and it doesn't matter, and it's all good. We love all the gods. And you come in and you proclaim this message, there is salvation in no one else. No under name, name given under heaven and earth by which men should be saved. That's offensive. It offends society. 
Like, it offends everything in the Roman world. And so these, these, these crazy Jewish guys come along, and Jews were not, like, well-liked in the world because Jews themselves were also pretty exclusive. They're like, this Yahweh God is the only God, and y'all, he's going to come for you, right? And so they're coming into the world, and they're proclaiming this, this thing. They're from this backwater Roman province, and they're talking about Jesus and the claims that he makes, and he says, him alone, he is the one, the real one through whom there is salvation and through whom there is knowledge and revelation about God and through whom there is reconciliation and peace. And all you have to do is put your faith in your trust in him, and you're going to be saved. That's an offensive message. It was certainly offensive in Rome to say that the world is ordered around this one guy, Jesus. It was ridiculous. It was intellectually offensive. It was culturally offensive. But it was the true gospel in Rome, and it's the true gospel now, and it's true in our culture today that it is still offensive. There has, uh, it, it's interesting in our culture today, like we've been super impacted by postmodernism. Like, you know, like if maybe the change that we've seen over the last 25 years in our culture has to do with some ideas that come from postmodernism, and we don't have time to talk about that uh, this morning. But what I think is interesting is that this turn towards postmodernism in our culture actually is a turn towards like kind of the culture of Rome at the time, a, a, a kind of a culture where um, paganism, where like it's kind of paganism again, not an insult, uh, where just the gospel, where it's going out and people are just believing whatever. Like that's kind of what postmodernism has opened up. Richard Bauckham, I've quoted him a couple times the last couple weeks, um, but he is a really good way of describing this. He says, the postmodern critique at this point consists of an appeal to, to diversity. There is an indefinite, in, in, indefinite variety of life goals one may, may choose, and to pronounce one better than others is to impose one's own choice on others. But this is, as so often turns out to be the case with postmodernism, the philosophy of consumerism, which exalts choice as the supreme value in itself. Respective of the, irrespective of the content of choice. In other words, we live in a culture that values ultimate choice, ultimate freedom, like you can do whatever you want, and who could possibly come to you and tell you that one way is better than another way? Like, that's offensive. It's offensive to suggest that to people, right? They will be genuinely offended. You will genuinely offend their principles and their ideas if you say to someone, actually, no, Jesus, like, kind of really said that he's like the way. you, you got to put your trust in him. And to put your trust in other things isn't going to lead to the same results. And that's it, right? Not just to suggest that Jesus is true, but he says, but if you don't put your trust in him, you're going to go to a less good outcome than if you did. Like, you, like if you put your trust in Jesus, you'll have life, peace, reconciliation, life eternal with God. If you don't, you won't have those things. See, what we want to believe and the philosophy of consumerism teaches us is I, sh I can go any direction I want and still have all the good at the end. Wouldn't that be nice? I can do it. I can eat Twinkies 24-7 and I can look really good and not die of a heart attack at 47, right? But like, no, you can't. Like, we know that to be true, but our culture wants to believe that all ways are the same. Like, there's no consequence, right? And that is ultimately just about consumerism, and consumerism is thick in the air of our culture. See, the problem with the gospel, the reason it will always be offensive is that it, by its very nature, makes a simple claim. You can have all the things that you want, like you can have all your self-actualization and your joy and your peace simply by accepting God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Simply by believing, actually, no, the world is this one way. It is true that Jesus is my Savior and I can have peace with God. If only I would trust in that and live my life according to that one truth thing that I could believe, then my life would be changed. R Richard Bacham, again, he sort of, he explains the biblical narrative. He explains the gospel this way. I really like this. He says, the biblical narrative is a story, and not like a fake story, like a true story, of grace and free response. In this story, all is given by God, including freedom. The world, our being in it, our redemption from the evil we make of it, all are God's gift which always precedes God's requirements of us. The authority of the Bible 
is the authority of God's grace to which we respond in the free obedience of love. This authority is not so much about the subjugation as about gift. Its effect is therefore not repressive, but liberating. The the proclamation of the gospel is actually if you trust this one Jesus who's revealed himself, and he says, all I want you to do is trust me, believe in me, have faith in me, walk according to that knowledge, and then you will find that you have a life with God. You'll have salvation, and you'll have like a transformed life. The authority that we believe in at the heart of the gospel is this idea is that we have grace, we are surrounded by grace, and we can respond to God's grace, his, his, his good creation in the world, his love for us, his faithfulness. us. We can just say, yes, God, I want to believe that. I trust that you are, you are true and you're right. And we just walk into that people. And the result of that is not like, oh, man, I have to just like limit myself and I only have to believe in this Jesus thing. And that's such a drag. No, the result of that is freedom. The result of that is actually, like, I thought that I could go any direction that I wanted and get the same result, and I find, no, actually, I tried all those things, but now I actually come to believe that, actually, as I trust in Jesus, and and I take on his authority as Messiah, and I just say, okay, yeah, Jesus, like, I'm going to give you my life and my heart and my my everything, my worship, like, everything I have, I'm going to build my whole life around you. I find that by doing that, accepting that limitation, I actually am free. And that by being unlimited in everything, I actually find that my life is futility. Trying to go down every road and be everything and achieve everything and believe everything and think everything is okay actually leads me to a point of exhaustion, frustration, unsatisfaction, separation from God. But to limit myself, to throw off consumerism, just say, no, Jesus, like, it's you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to accept and live my life by your grace and your grace alone. To, to live that way, according to the free obedience of love of Jesus, that leads to peace and life, freedom and liberation. That idea does not square with the ideas of culture, right? Because it's just say, no, like, all these things you want, you, you can't have it by going down the road of consumerism. The things that you want, the things that you were created for, you actually find it on this one road of trusting in Jesus. That's an offensive idea. But Jesus says that's how the world works. That's the gospel that was being proclaimed. But, but people don't want to believe it, right? Uh, I don't have this up here, but uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Um, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are when we are not trusting in Jesus, like we are, we are blind to the fact of, of who he is. We think that we can go through life just choosing any direction that we want, but we find that it is a very unsatisfying way to live. It's like we are surrounded by light, but we're blind to it. Like God has given and created the world to be a, a testimony to his faithfulness and goodness in the middle of all things, and yet we're blind to it. We can't see it. It's like, it's like the world is, like, like, like we're all like people like surrounded by oxygen, but we have like asthma. We can't breathe. Like until we trust Jesus, we, we can't breathe. Even though we're totally immersed in oxygen all the time, something is wrong with us. That until we come to Jesus and we say, oh Lord, I'm just going to depend on you. I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to build my life around you. Until we come to Jesus like that, we can't breathe. Paul and Barnabas, and that's the work that we're called to, to continue to live by that truth and to continue to proclaim that truth. And I swear I can find my page here. Last one. Okay. It's been heavy. I admit. How? How? Okay, like, so, so, so we believe this thing, we believe this gospel, it's a particular gospel, it leads us to freedom, but the world is so, like, confused, like, like so, so how is the church in the state that it's in? How, how is life the way it is sometimes? How am I so discouraged sometimes? How is it that when I wake up and it's still raining, I feel like, oh, I just don't want to get out of bed, and I don't want to go to church, and I, I'm not really excited about this whole thing. 
what was the difference, right? Because I, I really just believe that Paul and Barnabas, like these leaders in Antioch, like they're just like normal people. They're, they're, everybody in the Bible is just like you. Everybody in the Bible has the same problems that you have. They're not just better people or more focused people or stronger people. They're just normal people. They're just normal people, but like, what was the difference? Like, like why in the middle of a culture just like ours, like, were they sent out and did they see this massive move of God? Like, and why are we just like sitting here and we're just like scratching our heads and wondering, is it, is it worth it? What's the difference? I think that if we read the text, there's, there's something that they're doing here, right? That I think oftentimes we, we can fail to do. So let's, let's just read it again. Let's Acts um, 13. Yeah. Okay, so they're, they're in there, right? And just picking up in verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set them apart, apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. And then, after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. What were they doing? What were they doing when the Lord spoke to them? Yeah. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. And then God speaks to them, and what do they do afterwards? They fast some more? You you fast again? You you double fasted? You fasted, and then you went right back into more fasting? That sounds, I'd be hungry, right? They prayed, and they laid hands on them, and they sent them off. Paul didn't spend that decade (laughs) the way that I often spend my time which is just being like, ugh. Like, that's how I spend my life. I wake up in the morning and go, ugh. Paul spent that decade being set apart for the Lord. He, he had this understanding, this, this revelation of Jesus. And like, I can't, it probably was a difficult time, but like he, he, he somehow kept up this consecration, this setting apart his life for the purposes of God, worshiping, Fasting, praying, being an everyday disciple, doing all the things that we've been talking about. He lived a life persistently, probably for a long time, of just like seeking the Lord, living and and leaning into this relationship that he had. And in the middle of that, in the middle of a culture just like ours, in the middle of a difficult long season, just like maybe some of us have been feeling like we've been having, he's set apart from the Lord, he's seeking the Lord persistently, and God shows up. And then what does he do? He says, I've been waiting for this for so long. I've been waiting to hear this charge of God, go out, do something for me, like be of use for my kingdom, be a light in the world. I've been sitting around not doing anything, but now I'm ready. And what does he do? He says, so even all the more so, I need to now continue on in consecration. I need to fast and pray more. I need more of the spiritual power and more of God's presence than I've been having these past 10 years. Because if I'm going to go out and face uh, up to the work that I have in a difficult culture amidst hostility and indifference, I definitely need a fullness of the Spirit in the middle of all that. I'm not going to be satisfied with what I had yesterday and say, oh, that's what's going to get me through the next 20-something years of being a missionary in the middle of this culture. He says, no, okay, I've been called, and so I need God's presence and power and grace in my life all the more. And for me, when I'm meh, when I just come out, it's it, it, out like just, uh, just discouraged, I realize that it's always the same problem. It's always the same problem, is that I am just so focused on me, and I'm so focused on my difficulties and my problems, and I'm not seeking the Lord at all. Like, I'm not praying, I'm not worshiping, I'm not living as an everyday disciple, and Whenever I do that, I consistently get so discouraged. Worship team is going to come up here. Um, But I just want to encourage you guys. What we're going to see over the next couple chapters of the book of Acts is that Paul and Barnabas go out and they just have remarkable success. Not the success of skillful people the success of people empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
the successive people who are proclaiming this message faithfully, but are consecrated to the Lord. They're constantly praying. They're constantly being filled up. And God is using them despite all of the many obstacles, despite literally people trying to kill them on a regular basis, like every chapter for the next couple of chapters. Someone's going to try to kill them, right? And yet still they go out. Why? Because they are continuing to do these things. They're continuing to be set apart for the Lord. They're continuing to believe this this crazy gospel that if they just devote themselves to Jesus, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, like they are going to be moving forward. The Lord is going to be filling them up. They're going to be having success in this ministry. Guys, if you're discouraged, if you're discouraged right now, my encouragement is to do like Paul does here along with Barnabas, worship, pray, fast. If you've got a difficulty in your life, I know fasting like sounds kind of crazy, but it's just a practice where we, we don't eat for a period of time and we just seek the Lord instead and we direct all of our energies and our loves and our desires towards him. And God responds when we do those things. That might sound crazy, right? That sounds like in, in a world of consumerism, sounds like, no, that sounds like a bummer. I don't want to do that. But what God tells us over and over again in his word is when we seek the kingdom of God first, when we seek him first, he always meets us. Like he's always faithful to show up. And we need that. I, I need that right now. Like, I am, uh, like, I don't, this February has lasted three months too long, you know? I'm, like, sick of it. Um, and I really want to see the Lord comfort uh, me and lead me. And I want him to do that to you, too. So if you're in this place of frustration, can I just encourage you? Throw yourself on the Lord. Worship him. Not just like right now. I mean, yes, right now. But then like, how about Monday? How about Tuesday? You can worship him then too. You know, you don't have to be a musician to worship him. That's why they make Spotify. You just turn it on and you worship the Lord. Like you can go, like we're going to pray right now. We've prayed already. We've studied the Bible together right now. We've we've done already. Look at guys, I don't think this was a Sunday, right? It wasn't like, oh, we happened to be in a prayer meeting and so we fasted and we worshiped and prayed and then all of a sudden God showed up. This was probably like a Tuesday. These are just them, them, them everyday habits of seeking the Lord, praying, fasting, and then God shows up. You know, we, we, we have created, I think, in the church, um, in, it's been my experience, it's like, it's like we've created this kind of dependence on the Sunday morning event. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Like, the Sunday morning event, you know what? Only happens once a week. <laughs> Only happens once a week. And you know, like, Saturday is always, like, the hardest day. Because it's like, man, it's been six days since I've had this Sunday morning event. And now I'm discouraged. And then I'm like, well, should I even go? Like, I'm so discouraged. Like, what difference could it possibly make? When we spend time with the Lord, ongoingly, setting ourselves apart for Him, fasting, praying, worshiping, we get the restoration and the renewal and the joy that's promised in Jesus. But it involves that particularity. It involves that commitment of saying, yeah, okay, no, actually, I am going to believe in this Jesus. I'm going to go that way, the, the way of actually worshiping this one guy who says he is the name by which we must be saved. And so guys, go and do that. Go and do that. Set the time on your calendar right now. Decide when on Monday you're going to worship, when on Monday you're going to pray, when on Tuesday you're going to pray, when on Tuesday you're going to worship, when you are going to be filled with his presence because he is willing to fill you, when he's going to encourage you because he's willing to do it. So, Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you that they're patient with me even though I talk too much. Uh, God, you go before us, I pray. Lord, would you fill us up with your spirit? Lord, fill us up past the point of full, overflowing with joy, peace, Lord. Lord, as we daily walk by your power, Lord, looking past the the circumstances, but to you and your faithfulness, God, fill us up. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's worship. Let's worship.